For some time now, after a major athletic championship game, I'm thinking of the Final Four, I'm thinking of the the BCS Bowl Series, I'm thinking of the Super Bowl. For some time now, after a major athletic championship game, immediately after the victory, thousands and thousands of shirts and hats and towels and other sports uh, apparel suddenly appear for sale which feature the winning teams. I mean, the clock has run out. Victory has been declared by the new world champion and the fans which saw this take place in the stadium stream out of the stadium and there are vendors ready to sell apparel and and deliriously happy fans pay full retail to Don Clothing that that declares their loyal allegiance to their winning team. How in the world do these articles of clothing get printed so quickly after the victory? Well, we're pretty quick, aren't we? I mean, we live in a college community. We know, we know, we know that every one of those shirts and hats have been pre-printed. And so, for instance, at the Super Bowl, the manufacturer, Reebok, they produce hats and shirts and towels. They've pre-produced these items, these sports apparel, which declare both teams the winner. Both teams. Thousands of pieces of sports apparel are pre-printed and pre-produced and then tucked away until immediately after the game and then the boxes are cut open and the profits begin. That's how. So they make a killing on the winning team. Which means, of course, that half of the apparel, half of the clothing stock... The losing team, we're talking thousands and thousands of brand new, never worn before sports shirts and hats. Half the stock is immediately rendered irrelevant. And it won't be sold at full retail. And you'd be hard-pressed to find one for sale anywhere. Huh? In fact, for the Super Bowl, they don't sell the loser stock. They don't. They give it to World Vision, and World Vision ships it off to a third-world country. That's what happens. Of course, the vendors are careful to release clothing only after the game is played and the victory is declared. Because, you see, to wear a hat or a shirt before the game's over, before victory has been declared, before the trophy's been given, well, I mean, you know, that would be a little rash, wouldn't we think? Possibly a little overconfident, huh? Presumptuous? Or would it? Or would it? Well, that's what I want us to explore this morning in Revelation chapters 15 and 16. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to the last book of the New Testament. The last book of the New Testament. I want you to keep this little sports apparel history lesson in the back of your mind. As we look at these verses here, 
You'll find Revelation chapter 15 on page 874 of your church Bibles. Now the year is about A.D. 95, and the Apostle John is near the end of his life. He's in his 80s. The Roman government has him in exile on the island of Patmos. He can't get to the churches that he's been pastoring in western Turkey. But on a Sunday, the Lord's Day, a day like we're gathering here for worship, the first day of the week, Jesus Christ appears to the Apostle John to give him a series of visions which make up what we read here in the book of Revelation. And the intent of this book, the intent of these visions are to urge Christians and encourage them and challenge them, Christians both then and now, to endure and to persevere hardship and struggles, even if that means they give their lives. Because one day, the king will return. And he is going to restore Eden. He's going to transform this broken, fallen world into the new heavens and the new earth. And until then, the message to believers, both then and now, is you stay faithful. You stay faithful. And so John writes, John writes graphically and symbolically, John who is flesh and blood, enters the realm of the spirit, the spirit realm. The the apostle Paul said that things heard in the spirit realm are inexpressible. So how do you express the inexpressible? How, how How do you describe the Grand Canyon to someone born blind? How do you do that? How do you describe the sounds of Mozart to one who has never been able to hear? John is in the spirit realm, and so he's communicating a message of encouragement to flesh and blood Christians. And so he's going to use a style of writing. Technically, it's called apocalyptic writing, apocalyptic literature, to describe his experiences. And he's going to try to speak a message of hope for those who are suffering and do so in a way that they can connect it, they can get it, and it will, it will connect not only their heads, but their hearts. God's word speaking to them to endure, to endure to the end. And I want us to listen to these words in Revelation 15 this morning. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to begin reading, uh, beginning in chapter 15, verse 1, and uh, when we get to verse 3, and you'll see this on the screen, the letters will be a kind of a pale orange. That's where you help me. So I'll do some reading by myself, and then you'll know what to do. We did this about a month ago. When it's your turn, you just cut loose. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1 says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. Next. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name, they held harps given them by God. 
and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here we go. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. Now, I want you to think of these first four verses in Revelation chapter 15. I want you to think of these verses as like a motion picture, a movie. And if we're going to understand the movie here, if we're going to get this movie, you have to have seen the prequel. The prequel. What's the prequel? What's, what, what's the movie before the movie? Well, look back at that phrase in verse 3, Song of Moses. You see that? Song of Moses. That's the prequel. That's our clue. The Song of Moses. Moses of the Old Testament. Moses, who was the deliverer. Moses, who grew up and through an act of God was an adopted son in the court of Pharaoh. And for the first 40 years of his life, he lived among privileged royalty. But in an act of rage, he murdered an Egyptian and became a fugitive. He became a wanted man. He fled Egypt. He met the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And for the next 40 years, Moses lived another another life, the life of a shepherd. And, And then God called him back to Egypt to confront the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. God, through Moses, ordered Pharaoh to release the Hebrew nation so that they could worship him. That's what God wants us to do with our liberty and freedom. He wants us to use our freedom to worship him. Well, of course, Pharaoh refused. And God, through Moses, broke the nation of Egypt with ten disasters, ten plagues. And each plague corresponded to a popular Egyptian idol, and the message was clear. God is God, and Pharaoh is not. And finally, Pharaoh relented and released Israel, but then he changed his mind. Remember? He sent chariots after God's people. And there, God's people with their toes on the edge of the deep end of the Red Sea, God's people were as good as dead. I mean, they were facing the Red Sea with no place to go. It's an ocean. And then behind them, the chariots of Pharaoh, they were pinned in, and death was certain. And then God acted. He parted the waters, and on dry ground, his people went through to the other side. Through the waters, there was, there was salvation and deliverance. And, and of course, it was a bait. God's people went through Pharaoh's chariots, foolishly followed in hot pursuit. And then suddenly, God acted again in one swift, catastrophic, cataclysmic move. The walls of the Red Sea came crashing down on Pharaoh's chariots. I mean, one second, there's the army, and the next second, they're gone. Gone. All of them. The Bible says not one of them survived. But on the other side of the sea, safely, 
and securely stood the people of God, the victors. And in Exodus chapter 15, Moses and the Israelites sang the song of Moses. The song of Moses. I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The song of Moses. That's the prequel. <laughs> okay? And so John, whose Hebrew Christian audience would have connected this defining event in their national heritage and history. John wrote of the song of Moses here in verse 3, which is also the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb. The Lamb is a warrior. See, the Lamb is his name. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, that's our song too, John is saying. Jesus is great. Jesus has acted. Jesus has delivered. Put on your hat. Wear your shirt. Wear it. We've won. And just as Israel stood on the banks of the Red Sea centuries and centuries ago, the redeemed saints, do you see that? They're standing beside the sea, verse 2. Standing, standing beside. And just as Israel sang the song of victory over God's deliverance, so the Christians sing a song, a festive, joyful, acoustic Harp-driven. Remember, we're not talking about the kind of harps we hear at Cranard. We're talking about hee-haw harps. That's what we're talking about. That, that ages me. <laughs> God's people have escaped the teeth of a false trinity. Satan the dragon, Satan the land beast, and Satan the sea beast, you see. But here's the difference. And see, here's the difference. Whereas the people of God in Exodus sang the song of Moses after their deliverance and after God's Super Bowl victory over Egypt. Here in Revelation chapter 15, the difference between Exodus 15 and Revelation 15 is that whereas before, whereas in in Exodus 15, God's people sang after their deliverance, here in Revelation 15, the community of the redeemed The 144,000, all symbols describing the the community of God's people, here in Revelation 15, they're singing the song even though they have yet to be fully delivered. You see? It hasn't happened yet. The game is not over, and yet they sing as if it already is over. (laughs) That's faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And the challenge for Christians who heard these words then and Christians who hear these words now is that God wants us to live now the way we're going to live after the victory has been consummated. And do you know Do you see what's going on when we worship here, church family? Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what happens when we gather on Sunday morning, when we 
sing and when we worship, when we meet in small groups, when we, when we declare that God is mighty to save and when we pray and when we, when we study the word and when we passionately pursue Christ upwardly in worship and inwardly through, through scripture and prayer and Christ being formed in us and then pursuing Christ outwardly in service and evangelism. You see, every time we serve Jesus, every time we are putting on that victor's hat, that victor's shirt, and we're declaring, even though the clock hasn't run out, that Jesus has won. That's what's going on here, church. That's what's happening. And I'm telling you what, that happened yesterday at Restoration Urban Ministries, where a record number of Windsor Rotors showed up with God's people, and we circled up in prayer, and it was a wonderful, wonderful mingling of a multinational, multiracial community of redeemed people who put on the hat and put on the shirt, and they declared Jesus the victor as they served the under-resourced. And Irvin Williams said it for all of us. This is heaven. This is heaven. And that's what we're seeing. We worship and pray and sing and serve because to the core of our souls, we believe that God has done a righteous act in Jesus and that what God did for Jesus in Easter, he will do for us one day. And that's the value of what we do here. That's the only value of what we do here. The only value. I mean, think about it for just a minute, will you? How is what's going on right here, right now at 1119? How is this fixing the economy? Come on. We're not growing anything. We're not building anything. Couldn't we be doing something else? Hmm? I mean, how is, what, how is what's going on right now helping to defeat terrorism? Helping to defeat Al-Qaeda? Come on. Isn't there a better use of our energy than to play music and pass around bread and juice? Really? And yet, isn't the point of worship not what we do, but what God has done? Isn't it? And so we worship, and we sing, and we pray, and we seek God. And when we do, it is putting on that victor's cap. We are saying, God, we're coming to you because we know that the victory is yours, even though the clock hasn't run out. We trust you. And church family, that kind of hope will get you through cancer. And that kind of hope will get you through divorce. And that kind of hope will get you through your boy's funeral. That kind of hope will get you through difficult times like this. That kind of hope will give you the strength to care for the EGR people in your life. Extra grace required. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of hope that kind of hope will purify you from toxic grudges. And that kind of hope, that kind of hope will make it affordable for you to forgive. <laughs> See? See, some of us don't think we can forgive because we, we can't afford it. 
Oh, yeah, when Jesus is your king, you can afford it. And that kind of hope will help you face death with confidence. With con- that kind of hope will allow you in your heart of hearts to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That kind of hope will allow you to say, death is not the worst thing that can happen to me. Unforgiven sin is the worst thing that can happen to me. You see, in Christ, you've already won. You've already won in Christ. And that means you don't have to survive this world. Well, you got too many people trying to survive this world. You don't have to survive this world. The ones in Revelation 15 didn't. They were the martyred ones. They didn't survive this world, and yet they sing. They sing. Will you sing? Will you pray? Will you? I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to give you an opportunity to participate in the experience of Revelation chapter 15. To put on, is your hat on? Have you put on the victor's hat? Are you wearing the victor's shirt, are you? Katie and I are going to lead us uh, in some responsive prayer. Come in power as we pray. Sing that all together. Just and faithful God, you have been so good. Come in power as we pray. One more time. Just and faithful God, you have been so good. Come in power as we pray. In this world, Satan has prompted the kind of selfishness that causes people to hoard their possessions and power for themselves without seeking to use it for the good of other people and and to do evil and to go to evil ends to keep it for themselves. Oh God, bring this selfishness to an end. Just and faithful God, you have been so die every day because they don't have food to eat. As Satan encourages materialism in wealthy nations and cities, their neighbors go unfed. God, bring this hunger to an end. Just and faithful God, you have been so Satan has access to people's minds and emotions, whether caused by mental illness or circumstances in life. Depression, anger, and hopelessness destroy lives all over the world. Oh God, bring this despair to an end. Trust and faithful God, you have been so good. Come in power. 
deceived people into believing that beauty is the most important on the outside and that sex is for your own pleasure with whomever you want and that our bodies are ultimately our own. And this causes immeasurable damage to people's hearts and minds and souls. God, bring this deceit to an end. Just and faithful God, you have been so good. Come in power as we pray. In this world, Satan prompts people to do great harm to one another. Violence in schools, in cities, and around the world is so common that we see it in the media without even being shocked by it anymore. God, please bring this violence to an end. Just and faithful, God, you have been so good. Come in power as we pray. Just and faithful, God, you have been so good. Come in now for God to end evil in this world, to bring this evil to an end. And now while we sing this next song, a song that's called God of the City, we would like to invite you to add your prayers to these golden bowls, the prayers that rise up as incense before the throne of God. In your chairs here and around, you see a slip of paper here. And I would like to invite you to complete this prayer in your life, in your world. What is it in your life and in your world would you like God to end? God, bring this blank to an end. I would like to invite you to complete that blank, put it on the slip, and then come and present it as an act of prayer before the throne of God. Please do that during this song, God of the City. Father God in heaven, we plead with you, please bring this evil to an end in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe see Be careful what you pray for. Um, I mean, we've just asked God to end it. All right? C.S. Lewis once wrote, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. God is going to invade, all right, but what good is it to say that you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like some dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others of us that none of us will have any choice left. You see, when God shows up again, he will do so without disguise. No disguise. And it will strike with either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creation. And then... It will be too late to choose your side.
You, you cannot say that you are choosing to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time we discover which side we have already chosen. That's chapter 16. Revelation 16 verse 1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The bowls. The bowls. The bowls are round three of three sets of judgment that that we have seen in Revelation. Earlier in Revelation, John saw seven seals, not animals, seals, blobs of wax on a scroll. And then later John saw seven trumpets. And here John sees seven bowls. And one scholar says that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls describe the the same reality but with some variation. And one variation is that the effects are more severe. You see, the seven seals told about devastation to just a quarter of the earth. And then if you recall, the seven trumpets talked about destruction over a third of the earth. Here, the catastrophic bowls render total and complete judgment, but only on the enemies of God. And the fact that there are three sets of seven judgments make clear that God is in control, even of all the bad things. And some of those bad things were happening to John's churches. So these bowls... Filled with the prayers of God's people, prayers which rise as incense to the throne, these bowls become something totally different to the enemies of God. What is incense from the believers to the throne of God get upended as God's wrath upon his enemies. And in a very visual, almost science fiction type imagery, these angels upend these bowls and outpours the wrath of God on his foes. And, and so these, and these seven bowls then would, would, re, would have reminded John's readers of the plagues of, of the prequel, remember Exodus? The plagues which God inflicted against Pharaoh so that Pharaoh then would release God's people so that God's people would use their freedom to worship. And of course Pharaoh refused to repent. He was punished with those plagues. And in Revelation, God's enemies, like Pharaoh, they refuse to repent. They aren't the repenting kind. Don't we see that in Revelation 16? Look at verse 9. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. And then look at verses 10 and 11. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And then look at verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell on men, and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. My teacher, Grant Osborne, called this the, he called this the insanity of depravity. The the enemies of God are so twisted with evil that they refuse to repent, they complain and curse God in their suffering, and on top of that, they whine because of the weather. (laughs) 
Another scholar, D.A. Carson, once wrote, hell is, not, hell is not filled with people who finally learn their lesson. It's filled with people who want nothing to do with God. They suffer and curse God because of their suffering, but they refuse to change. That's what hell is like, an ongoing cycle of sin and rebellion and judgment and sin and rebellion and judgment and sin and rebellion and judgment, world without end. And the judgment is severe because God takes sin seriously. And thus the song, that's that's what we've been singing. That's the song that the angels sing. Just and true are your ways. So the question isn't, well, how could these punishments from God, I mean, how could, well, why are they so, so severe? The question is, how could, they, how could they not be so severe? If God is just and fair, he must punish evil. And, and, and furthermore, the punishments in Revelation 16 are the answered prayers of Revelation 15. The prayers that we've just filled these bowls with, you see. And furthermore, Satan, who knows his time is short, he is so twisted that then he turns on his own followers. He betrays those who follow him. Satan's going down, and he's going to take as many as he can with him. And that explains the sixth bowl in verses 12 and following. In verses 12 and following, the the Euphrates River dries up. In John's day, the Euphrates River was the easternmost border of the Roman Empire. And the Euphrates River kept the feared Parthian Empire out. But But in this vision here, the Euphrates River dries up. And now the enemies can invade. And so in John's vision, Satan baits the enemies of God to pour in and merge into this one massive confederation against God at a, at a symbolic place called Armageddon. Now, Armageddon was a famous battlefield in the Old Testament. And so, it, and so the, the, the place symbolizes the location where the, where the final stand occurs between God and his enemies. Think about that for a minute. God's enemies are saying, okay, we're all going to gather together, and together we're going to fight God? God? (laughs) That's folly. To fight God? (laughs) Well, okay. And the war is fought in verse 17. The enemies show up. God shows up. And the war is fought with one word. God shows up. The enemies are there. Their guns are cocked and ready to go. God shows up and says, done! And the war's over. Is there any other way to read that? (laughs) I mean, the God who spoke worlds into existence... He speaks and it's done. When my, when, my, when my brothers and I would be, you know, fighting in the family room growing up and we'd be being brothers, Robbie, Randy, Ricky, we'd be, fight, we'd be fighting each other and then the dad would show up and dad would say, secure it! And it was done. It's over. The God of the universe shows up and says, done! And it's over and the enemies crumble. Thunder, lightning, the hailstone. And to their eternal death, the enemies of God still refuse to repent. Wow. And that's chapter 16. 
Well, I mean, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this? I'll tell you what we're to make of this. Jesus tells us. Jesus himself tells us in Revelation 16, verse 15. Jesus himself is speaking here. There's kind of a, he kind of interrupts. There's kind of like an interlude here where Jesus just speaks now to Christians then and now. He says, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake. And keep his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. To be clothed then in that day meant to be ready. Don't get caught napping. Keep your hat on. Remember the hat we talked about at the beginning of this message? Keep your hat on. Wear your shirt. And whatever you do, don't leave the stadium early. Huh? We've done that, loyal Illini fans that we are. No, we just get so we just can't watch it anymore, right? I can't watch it anymore. And we leave. And Jesus says, Oh no, no. You leave, and you're gonna miss the victory. <laughs> See? I mean, because it only appears that we're losing. It only appears things are not as they seem. The cross looked anything but a victory. It was a slave's death. No Roman citizen could be crucified except on order of the emperor. And yet Christianity's greatest hour was the cross. Because three days later, our king got up. And we win. And we believe that God will do for us what he did for Jesus that first Easter. And so, don't leave the stadium. Keep your shirt on. Wear your hat. Soren Kierkegaard put it this way. He was a pastor He once wrote, those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The the admirer is infatuated with the false security of greatness, but if there is any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Admiring the truth instead of following it is just as dubious as a fire, as the fire of erotic love, which at the turn of a hand can be changed into exactly the opposite, hate, jealousy, revenge. Then Kierkegaard said this, Christ has never asked for admirers. He wants disciples. He wants followers. And so Jesus says, keep following. Keep your hat on. Keep your shirt on. Stay awake. Will you? Hmm? Will you? You see, today, God holds, and not seven bowls, but two. In one hand, he holds the bowl of his wrath, the the sevenfold bowl of his wrath. In the other hand, he holds the bowl of his blessing. And Christianity says, Christianity says that Jesus can say done at Armageddon because he first said done at the cross. Jesus himself drank the bowl, the sevenfold bowl of God's wrath. He drank the bowl of God's wrath so that we could enjoy and taste the bowl of God's blessing. But if we refuse the bowl of God's blessing, there remains only one bowl. From which will you drink? 
Lord Jesus Christ, thank you so much that you drank the bowl of wrath on the cross as you suffered for our sins so that you could transform us into a worshiping community that sings and praises you for your victory. We are safe and secure on the other side of the sea. And we're going to live now by faith the way we will live one day by sight as we come to this time of communion, as we receive the elements, the bread and the cup, we thank you that you received the bowl of God's wrath for us. And we thank you that because of that, we can drink the bowl of your blessing. God be praised. Amen.